We are uh, continuing in our series, Alpha and Omega, God from beginning to end. We've got a glimpse of him in the end, and that pushed us back to begin to study from the beginning, uh, seeing God as always being God. Uh, This will, uh, for those of maybe that haven't heard it yet, this is going to be a a survey of the whole Bible. We'll take a break here in a few weeks for Advent, but for the most part, we're going to be doing a survey of the whole Bible We'll end up in Revelation, um, well, when the Lord gets us there. But it, 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 it'll be, so, so we're in God creates, we'll do God covenants, God commands, God commissions, and God completes. I think it's kind of the overarching theme, themes that we'll work through, and we'll end up in Revelation. So, so anyway, the idea is seeing that God is God, always has been, always will be, and is right now in this very moment. He is God. He is all that he has ever been. And, and, and as, as sovereign as he was in creation, he is today. So, so that's the series. That's what we're working through. And that's where we're headed. Uh, today we're in Genesis chapter 1, picking back up in the creation story. So we, we've, the last couple of weeks we looked at the six days of creation. Today we're going to zoom in on one of those days and really look at what he did in creating mankind. So, so everything he did in creation is, is, is amazing. It's pretty awesome. We get to see the greatness, the, the sovereignty, the power of God in creating the heavens and the earth. We get to see his glory being revealed in creating these things. Um, but there's a moment right in the midst of creation uh, that stands out, that, that just it, it, it rises above, if you will. It's, it's more clearly demonstrating his greatness and his glory. So, so let, me, let me illustrate that just quickly. So, so as we read the story of Exodus, right, and you hear about God leading the Israelites out of Egypt by his power, splitting a sea, and they're crossing on dry ground. That's pretty amazing, right? Like his glory is revealed in that, in that part of the Bible, and that's part of the story. We tend to lose focus and struggle reading in the book of Numbers and the book of Leviticus. <laughs> Those are just as demonstrative of his greatness and glory but there's a standout moment as he's leading the Israelites out before he gets to the place where he's giving them law and, and, and they are counting and accounting for one another. So, so, so that, that, that's the same thing's happening in the book of Genesis. God's the sole source of everything that's, that, that exists. If, it's, if it isn't God, God created it, right? He is the sole source of everything that exists. He took what exists in those initial moments and he forms it into what we can see and experience and, and view around us. And then he filled, the, the cosmos that he created, he filled with light and life. And, and that's what we've been studying. But on the sixth day, he did something that stood out, that stands out, that was purposeful and intentional. That's kind of the crowning moment of the creation story. It's, it, it, it's more amazing than just creating life where there was no life, right? That's, that's pretty amazing. No life? Life, right? Like that, that's a big deal. It, it, to, that, that now life can procreate and we can spread out and fill, fill the world. And every living creature is blessed with the ability to procreate. Pretty amazing, right? But even more amazing. In the middle of all of that, one of these creatures, he looks at, he deems, he determines before he ever even begins to create them and says, they're going to bear my image. They're going to be like me. That is astonishing. And that's really what we're looking at today as we read Genesis chapter 1, 26 through 29. Then we're going to jump over and look at Genesis chapter 2, verses 7 through 22. Uh, we'll pray and then we'll dig in. So Genesis 1, beginning verse 26. Then the Lord said, then God said, 
Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heaven, over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said, uh, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, to have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. Now jump over to chapter 2, verse 7 is where we'll pick up. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in the east and a garden in Eden in the east, and there put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that's pleasant to sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is, is the Pishon. It is one, uh, one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And, and, and the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows to the east of Assyria. And the fourth river is Euphrates. The Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. From the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It's not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird in the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, it was, that's what it was, its name. The man gave names to all livestock, to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not, a, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. While he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Let's pray. Father, this is your word. This is the revelation of, of, of how you deemed and how you determined to create us. And so help us now, I pray. Understand the significance of it. Understand the, the, the application of it. Understand what it means for us today. But, but Father, I, I just pray that your spirit would move. Help us, to, help, help us to be conformed to this image even more greatly. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I've been told, um, I, I think it's true, I've been told that my sons look like me. Uh, in fact, I've had people say, oh, I was, thought I was, calling, I was calling your name, and I thought I was talking to you as, as Cameron was walking away. You know, we're both broad, we're both bald-headed, and, and uh, people have just assumed it's true. He, I don't know why he cuts his hair that way. He's got some on top, but, but you know, he wants to be like me. There's a, a likeness, a strong family resemblance, if you will. Um, if you've got kids, you've likely heard somebody say something like that. If you don't have kids, you probably at least have heard, you probably got parents, and have probably at least heard, well, you look like you're family, you look like your mom, you look like your dad, there's a family resemblance, right? And, and we know that the, the way things work out in our world, that not everybody gets to know them, 
But this, this isn't the idea, is that there's, there's this longing to be connected to those from whom we come, from, from where we come from. And, 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 and that's exactly what's happening here, is that God's letting us see, he's letting us into the reality that, that we have a family resemblance with him, that we belong to him, that we come from him. So many of the questions that we ask, so many of the struggles that we deal with, so many of the, the, the wrestlings we have in our heart are, are rooted in this very fact that we forget from whom we come from. And here we get to see it. God created us with a family resemblance, with a likeness to him. He created us to be like him. And that's, that's exactly what the text says in, in 26 through 29. We, we heard it said directly, right? Like, let us make man in our image. And so God did, created him in the image of God. He created them, male and female. That brings us to the question that's really going to shape the rest of our sermon is, what does that mean? What does it mean that God created mankind? What does it mean that mankind's been created in God's image? What does that, what, what does it literally mean? And, and there's a couple of different ways that we could approach that question. So there's, there's one way to look at that question that's like, I need to understand that. I need to have understanding. I need to interpret it properly. But there's another way that we can approach that question that is, well, what does it mean that I'm created in his image? Meaning, how do I apply that to life? The application question, right? Like, what does it mean for us? So, so there's this idea that we need to understand it, but there's also a, an understanding that, that there's a, a meaning for, for life today. And, and we're going to seek to answer it both ways today as we, we walk through this. I hope by the time we're finished that that's the that that's the understanding and the application will, will, will be clear and plain from the text we've read. And there's been a lot of different ways that this has been addressed in history. There's a lot of different ways that people have been seeking to, to define this or answer the question, what does it mean? And in one way, some, some focus on the attributes of God. They look at his attributes and they say, well, there's some ways we're like God in, in the way that he's revealed us, and there's some ways we're not. And so they've divided those attributes, so communicable attributes and incommunicable attributes, Communicable attributes are those that we share with him. Incommunicable attributes are those that separate God from us. So his omniscience, his omnipresence, his all-knowing, his, his, his uh, omnipotence, his omniscience, his omnipresence, all of these things that, that he's eternally existing in all places at all times, never learns, is, is able to do all that he intends to do and longs to do, that, that, that makes him God. We're obviously not that, right? I, I think, what's the heaviest thing a person's ever picked up? Like 5,000 pounds? Not 5,000. That'd be massive, right? Uh, what's the heaviest weight that somebody's picked up? Like a few hundred, 500, something like that. It's a crazy amount of weight. It doesn't really take a lot of power to pick up 500 pounds. We make machines that make that look easy, right? It's not a lot of power. We're not omnipotent. We're, we're not omnipresent, limited time and space. Like, I can't tell what's happening. Well, we might hear some kids crying, and we might get an idea of what's happening in the room next door. But we don't really know what's happening in the room next door because we're not omnipresent. We're not omniscient. We're, we're learning. We're constantly finding out we're wrong. And somebody else is right. That's not fun, but it's, it's real. Those, those things, so, so there's, there's theologians, there's, there's, there's Bible teachers that have sought to describe what it means to be created in the image of God to show how we're like him, but also how we're not like him. And then there's others that have, have, have sought to focus on the abilities of mankind in contrast to the rest of creation. And so they talk about our ability to create, right? So, so we're a creative people. I mean, I, I, I think I could say this. I, I, I could be wrong about this. I don't think monkeys paint. You know, they, not, not to the degree that we do. They might be able to get a paintbrush and slop some stuff on a canvas. But, and I'm guessing there's probably people who would pay a lot of money for that. 
they're, they're, they're not able to, what's that one with the stars swirling in the sky that's off, you know, that's, there you go. Eh, not that. There's nothing about that, that they're not going to be creating and, and carving and sculpting and they're not going to do those things. They're animals. There's a distinction, right? There's, there's ways in which we, we speak and, and communicate that's clearly distinct, clearly separate from. And so there, there's, there's some theologians that, that would define this and, and, and talk about in terms of how we're like God and how we're not like God. And then there's others who would... Who would, who would describe it and define it in terms of how we're like the creation and we're not like the creation. And suddenly I realize, I, I don't know, I, don't, I'm, I doubt that I'm the first person that, that, that thought of this, but I, it dawned on me as I was studying this and reading from all these people that really the only way to understand what it is to be created in the image of God is to, to understand how that affects us in relation to God and to the creation. So that's how we're going to answer it. But, but before we jump in right to that, we have to recognize one key component. Everybody, no matter how they're defining it, everybody that comes to the Bible and says this is our, that this is what defines us, this is the image of God, and regardless of whether they're doing it in comparison to creation or comparison to God, they're recognizing that this is the central component of what makes us human. There is no humanity that isn't, that, that exists apart from this reality. Being created in his image defines us as humans. So that's the first way I'd answer that question. What does it mean? It means this, this is what makes us human. This is what separates us from, from, from God. It's what separates us from creation and every other being, every, every other living thing. This is the central core essence of what it is to be human. Now, R.C. Sproul picked up on this. He's a pretty smart guy. You probably have heard of him before. He picks up on this and, and writes about it in in a devotional, but he, he, he writes this, and it, it's, an interesting, it, it's an interesting thought. Man, and it's a long quote, it's on the screen, so you can read and follow along. He, he writes this, man in the 20th century has been busily engaged in the quest for dignity. It is a very earnest quest. The civil rights movement developed the cry, we are human beings, we are creatures of dignity. We want to be treated as beings of dignity. And I think all of us would, I, I think we all agree. So also have others. But the existentialist tells us that our roots are in nothingness. That our future is in nothingness. And he asks, think, man, if your origins are in nothing and your destiny is in nothing, how can you possibly have any dignity now? If our past history tells us we have emerged from the slime, that we are only grown-up germs. Think about it, grown-up germs. What difference does it, can it possibly make whether we are black germs or white germs? Whether we are free germs or enslaved germs? Who cares? We can, sing the, we can sing of the dignity of man, but unless that dignity is rooted substantially in that which has intrinsic value, all of our songs of human rights and dignity are so much whistling in the dark. They are naive, simplistic, and credulous. And the existentialist understands it. He says, you're playing games when, you're, when you call yourselves creatures of dignity. If all you have is the present where there is no dignity, only nothingness. The idea, the, the, the thing he's picking up on is if we are not created in the image of God, if there's not intrinsic value rooted in the very core of who we are as humans, then why, would, why, why, do, why do morals matter? Why do why, why, why does it matter how we govern ourselves? Why does it matter how we treat one another? If we do not have this 
factor, as a central identifying component of humanity, then we are not different than monkeys. We are not different than the fish that swim in the sea. Then we, our, our lives don't matter. But the reality is, as the Bible teaches us, that this is the central defining component of what it means to be human. We are created in the image of God. So, so being created in his image defines us as human. But being created in his image defines us in relation to him. And we see this all the way through these passages that I read. So first, likeness to God. We're like God, but we are not God. He created an image, not a replacement. He, he created something that would, 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 would reflect him, but not be him. In the same way that if you look in the, in the mirror and see your image reflected there, you're not assuming that's you. Not, not in a real substantial way. That's what you look like. It, it, at least, well, you know, a flipped version of you. It's flipped on the, I think, the Z axis. And I don't know that that's exactly how other people see you. But when you look in a mirror, that's what you see of you. Right? That's not you. If somebody shatters the mirror, they've not harmed you. If somebody, if somebody comes up and draws a mustache on the on the mirror that you're standing in front of. It doesn't mean you have a mustache all of a sudden. It's not done anything to you. It's an image. It's simply a, simply a, a reflection. It's a likeness, not a replication. So, so, so we see that across the passage. Let's, let, let us create man in our image, in our likeness. Right? That's the idea. He's simply creating something like him. So, so, so in relation to him, we're, we're like him, but we're not him. This is probably a, a sermon for another day, but I think our big problem is sometimes we don't just want to be like God, we want to be God, and so that's our big problem, but we weren't created to be God, and so we run out, we run out of steam, and in a, we run into inability. We're created to be like Him, to reflect Him, to image Him. The authority of God, it's clear across this passage, His authority, His authority is not an extension of our submission. Right, so I said this in the in the first couple of weeks. I said I brought this up as he's God, not because we allow him to be God, because we give him permission to be God. He's God because he's simply God. Right, he's he's God and has authority because of creation, not because of our submission. We see him exercising that authority as he creates mankind and says, "This is the way it's going to be. Here's the here's the job I created you for." Here's the food you're going to eat. Be fruitful and multiply. Go do these things. He's exercising authority all over the place. Now, we may not appreciate what you, you sometimes, when I say you, I don't always appreciate what I'm about to say. But there's a reality that this image relates us to God in his authority, but not just in the sense of he has a right to command us. He actually owns us. So, so the, I, th I think the, maybe the clearest place the scripture reveals this is in Jesus is being challenged by the Jewish leaders of the day, and, and they come up to him, hey, should we pay taxes to, to Caesar? You remember his question is in Luke 25, it's Matthew and Mark both recorded also. You remember his answer? Pay unto Caesar, or first he says, whose image is on the coin? And they say Caesar's. 
And he says, paying a Caesar, what is Caesar's? Because the image on the coin implies ownership. Your, his image on you implies ownership. So, so here's the thing. He doesn't earn a right to command us. We don't bestow on him the right to do that by our free, willful submission. His authority is connected to his creation of us, not our submission to him. If we reject him, we aren't just sinning against God. We are sinning against the deepest core identity that we've been given as humans. Is it surprising to see our world in such straits today? Living against the very core depths of who they are as people. Trying to define themselves in all kinds of other terms. But always rejecting his image. It's tragic. His image, it defines us in relation to him because he's the one who determined the design. We are designed by God. We see that male and female. His intention here. It's not, not whimsical. It's not, hey, let's just throw a couple things together and see what comes out. It's absolutely intentional, purposeful. In fact, he calls it out in chapter 2 as, as we zoom into day 6. And, and, and chapter 2 and chapter 1 sound a little bit different because one is told chrono- chronologically and one is told from the, from the view of the creation of the man intentionally. And there's a moment in, on, on day 6 when God, when, when God is looking at things that he's created. It's the only time we hear in all of the creation story, he says, it is not good. And he walks through this purposeful and intentional process to show the man himself it is not good. There is a design to this, an intentionality. The worst thing you could ever do in the world is try to use a hammer as a screwdriver. Right? Because the design doesn't work. But, but that, that's the idea is that the, the designer says, this is a hammer. It's meant to pound things. Right? We're designed by God, male and female, both image bearers. Both equal in in representation and reflection, but a purposeful, intentional design. It it defines us in relation to him because he's the one that assigns purpose. Our purpose is assigned from God. Everybody run around trying to find their why, right? Like, I don't know if you've heard that in business talks or just local, uh, not local, but but cultural, psychological explanations. You've got to find your why. God gave it to us. He assigned us purpose from the very beginning. Let us make man that they may rule and subdue the earth. Exercise dominion. Then he creates them. He says, now go and do the thing I created you to do. Be the people I created you to be. So we have to understand that image isn't simply just some theoretical idea. that, that, That means we represent and reflect him. We were created for that. Reflect me on the earth. Reflect my image. Make my glory known in a way that the sun, moon, and stars can't. But represent my authority. Be a representation of my authority. I'm, I'm giving you the right to rule and subdue the thing that I own. I'm designing you for that purpose. Represent me. Reflect me. And if we're not willing to do this, then we're denying the very thing that makes us human. We cannot understand 
what being an image is until we recognize that it is absolutely necessary to understand what it means in relation to him. We are not free agents. Even the most atheistic, non-believer, rejecter of God in the deepest, darkest places on the earth is not a free agent. They owe their allegiance to God. And the great thing that they'll answer for at the end of all things is that they rejected him. He is God. Will always be God. And he is God right now. Not because we say so. Not because we give him permission to be. But because he is our creator. Being created in his image defines us in relation to him and it defines us in relation to creation. Being created in his image defines us in relation to creation. Again, we see this. It's the, the idea of these two different ways that people have sought to explain it throughout history. We are like other living creatures. There is a continuity and a discontinuity, but we're going to look at the continuity first. We are like other creatures. Genesis chapter 2, God, God formed the man from the dust. Verse 7, he formed the man from the dust. Hey, what were the animals formed from? Dust. We're, it's just like, no wonder there's some similarities. No wonder we can kind of see some of the same. We come from the same kind of stuff. God, God, God made the woman from the woman's rib. Who, who created the animals and every other thing that lives on the face of the earth? God. She's no different. Man's no different. God, who, who, who did God create the plants for to, to eat? Animals and us. <laughs> he provided us all food. Who, who was commanded to be fruitful and multiply? Every living creature. Who has the breath of life in them? Who, who is, in, in fact, the, the words living creature applied in the same way to, to animals in, in, in the sea, in the air, and in, on the earth? There, there is a clear connection. We are like them. We, we are similar. There is continuity to us and, the, and those that were created like us. But there is a discontinuity as well. There's a difference. At least so far as we know. Though the animals are said in, in the Noah uh, and flood uh, uh, narrative. We are told that, that animals have breath of life. There's a reference to breath of life here that, that implies it. But nowhere do we see such intention and purpose and intimacy in the midst of the creation. God formed the man out of the dust. He breathed life into him. Now, God's not got a body. He's not physical in the way that we are. But there's this image in which you can almost see him leaning in and, and breathing. Mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation, if you will. There's this idea that, that there's this intimate way in which that life, our life, entered us in a way that is distinct. No other no other creature, no other living creature was, was, was said to be an image bearer. Only mankind. There's a way in which the whole form and function of the six days of creation that, that you see here over and over. And God said, and God said, and God said, and God said. And, and, and then we come to day uh, six, in the middle of day six, after he's created the, the other living creatures, the beasts of the field and the wild animals. Then the Lord... Oh, sorry, I'm on... <laughs> 
then God said, right? The, the author changes, and instead of adding this continuation, and, 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 he changes language to draw our attention in. Something different, something distinct is about to happen. Then God said, let us. And we get to hear, this doesn't happen with any other created being, any other living creature, any other act of creation. We get insight to the divine counsel that happens within the Godhead. Now, lots of people are going to argue about, oh, he's talking to angels or he- other heavenly beings. Or I-, I think the clearest reading of the text, in connection with what we learn in the New Testament, I wouldn't argue for that. I've, t- I've said this a couple times. I wouldn't argue directly for the Trinity from these verses. But when you add John 1.1, the word was with God, the word was God, uh, uh, nothing was created apart from the word, right? Like that's John 1, 1 through 3, and then John 1, 14, so the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's Jesus, like, so, so the divine nature of, of Jesus, right? So, so uh, uh, Colossians says something similar to the, everything was created by him, for him, through him. So, so, so I, I think clearly the best understanding, the biblical view of this is that this is the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, saying to one another, let us. Make man in our image, that, that, that he would be a representation, a reflection, exercise dominion, that he would be our representation. Nothing else in creation said that. So, so along with that comes purpose and authority. We're, we're, we're to represent. We, we, we are created for this purpose and then expected to go and fulfill this purpose to the other creatures. No other creature's been told to go and rule over everything. Subdue it. Right? Go do it, he says. And in fact, in Genesis chapter 2, we actually see it begin to happen. Where Adam is like, it's, God says it's not good that man's alone. And Adam, what does he do? God brings the animals and he says, name them. So God has already demonstrated his authority. If you go back to Genesis chapter 1, and I know that this flipping back and forth and there's lots of little details, but you've you got to see this. In Genesis chapter 1, God demonstrates his authority and his sovereignty as he names things. God called the dry ground land, and the, the, the waters he called the seas, right? Like he's naming things, showing authority over them, showing his, his dominion over them. And he's created the man for it. And then as he's in this process of showing the man that he's all alone in the world, he says, hey, exercise some of that dominion I gave you to exercise. And everything that Adam said, lion, I don't don't know what he named, I I wasn't there, but that's what it's called, right? Camel, he he exercises sovereignty and authority. We see him doing the very thing that God has created him to do, to represent and reflect the glory of God and the greatness of God in the earth. Now, the psalmist recognized this. They they understood, they, they caught it, they picked up on it. In Psalm 8, David's writing, and he, he's just astonished as he thinks about mankind. So, so he sees it in relation to God, sees it in relation to man. He's like, oh, I'm moved. I'm just so excited. And he writes these words, Psalm 8, 3 through 8. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which, set, which you set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him? Yet, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with, with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. 
Now we know that ultimately Jesus is the fulfillment. He's the image of God that's unfallen, unstained by sin. We know that he's the ultimate fulfillment of this, but, but there's a way in which David, writing about this, he's drawing from that creation narrative, that creation reality, and he's saying, I can't believe that you designed and placed man in this way in the world, to be your representation, to be your, your, your reflection, to be your image bearer. He is so moved as he considers himself in light of who God is, in relation to God, in relation to creation. What is man that you are mindful of him? Dignified. You know why we're fighting for dignity? Because there's nothing like us in all creation that has the intrinsic value of being the bearer of our creator's image. And somewhere deep down inside, every one of us understand it. Every one of us know it. Unfortunately, we're looking to the wrong places to to found our belief in it. Being created in his image defines us in relation to him, in relation to the creation. And being created in his image defines us in relation to one another. Male and female, he created them. It was not good that the man was alone. And so God... There was no help for him, right? So God puts him to sleep, removes the rib, closes the area over with flesh, and forms the woman, makes the woman from the rib. We are equal in likeness. I, I, I don't know the right way to illustrate this or to say it, but, but I'm just going to... Man is not a better reflection or a fuller reflection of God image than woman and woman is not a greater or fuller reflection of God God's image than man we are image bearers equally the same equal in likeness but distinctly complementarian God formed the woman from the man's rib you realize that she is the first person that came from another person Man comes from the dust, woman comes from man. That's why there's a passage Paul is referring to that, that, that says that man is the, is, is the um, well, we're going to read it. It's, he's the honor of God and, and uh, the glory of God and, and woman is the glory of man because the woman came from the man's rib. Distinct. Equal in likeness, but distinct. There's differences. To deny those differences is to, is to go at the very core of how God created us. We're supposed to be different. We should be able to celebrate the differences. We should be be excited about the differences. Because those differences complement one another. So, so, So God says, hey, rule, subdue. Be fruitful and multiply. How's a guy going to do that by himself? It's not going to happen. Men become needy. Of the woman to fulfill the commands God's given them. But women become needy of the man to fulfill the commands God has given them. He's created us to do different things inside the same purpose. It's not a different purpose. It's the same purpose. It's just not a selfish purpose, right? I I think part of the reason we struggle with this is is that that we assign value from from a selfish perspective when when the reality is we're in his image. He's the one that designed us. He's the one that set the the purpose for us. He's the one that gives us authority. And and we're all trying to have our own. 
And so, oh, man, we got to fight with one another. we got to take it from one another. It's intrinsically ours. It's given to us by our creator. Distinctly complementary. It's beautiful. The, the women are, are designed and able to bear a child. To see in their womb grow. We've had lots of that happen in our church. Right? We love that. We celebrate that. It's a good thing. It's beautiful. It's no less beautiful that a man gets to be a part of that. In fact, science has found ways that they can do it without the physical presence of somebody there. But they still need the man. Right? That, that, that something like that happens, that we have the opportunity, the ability to participate in that, in, in that realm. And, and it takes us both. We, we need each other. That plays itself out over the whole of Scripture. We were never created to be alone or live by ourselves or be independent. But isn't that something we prize? I want to be independent. And guys talk about, I'm looking for an independent lady. And then they're upset when they're married to a woman who's independent. It's, a, it's just foolish, right? Like, we weren't created to, be, to live independently of one another. We weren't created for that. We were created to live, not, 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 not um, uh, uh, gosh, I can't think of the words, over-dependence. We're interdependent. We're, inter, we're, we're necessary for one another. Codependency, right? We don't, we don't, we, he didn't def- design us for codependency. He designed us for interdependency, to, to need one another. Because it goes, on, it goes beyond just the idea that, 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 that women can bear children. Men are physically stronger. It just is true. Now, I'm, I'm not just saying that that's always the case. I'm sure there's ladies who are working out and, and lifting weights and, and training, and they'd kick my butt. Part of that's because I'm a lover, not a fighter. But <laughs> I'm just kidding. I shouldn't have said that. I said, sorry. <laughs> now I've got to get back on track. No, generally speaking, men are just physically stronger, right? It's just the reality. This is the differences. There's a way in which God assigns certain roles to each person within this equality that's distinctly complementary, and it's rooted in the very foundations of our identity. And when we wrestle against those things, why would we be surprised when we're wrestling against the very core of our humanity? I would be, be surprised that there's so much hurt, so much heartache, so much anguish. Because we are not living in relation to one another the way we've been designed in purpose to live in relation to one another. Being created in the image of God defines us in relation to God, defines us in relation to creation and in relation to one another. So that's how I would say interpretively, understanding, seeking understanding, that's what I would say it means to be. Be created in God's image. But what does it mean that mankind has been created in God's image in an applic- a- application sense? In a, in a, what does it mean for me? What, is it, what, what does it mean for my life? And I've, I've, I've dropped some hits along the way. I've said some things along the way that I think w- would leave us and be okay. But I wanted to ask a particular question because we all know what happens in Genesis 3. I don't think there's a person sitting in this room that would would be surprised to find out that in Genesis 3, the, the chapter we're going to study in a couple of weeks, that mankind sins, rejects God, and goes his own way. There's a fall into sin. God curses 
uh, uh, our sin. God pronounces a curse on sin. So is that image still present? Here's the thought that came to mind as I was preparing this and thinking through it and, and how to apply it. God's image only defines us and matters to us if all mankind still bears his image. Right? Like, we can argue this. I can sit up here and talk about it from the book of Genesis, and I can say all these things, but it only matters to us if we're still bearing God's image. The question, then, demands an answer. And I think the best place to determine that is from the Scripture. So Genesis 9, 6, right after Noah and his family come out, God enters into covenant with them, gives them, uh, says, you can eat meat, but if an animal kills man, or whoever shed man's, sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. The image is still there. And so there's an accounting for life. So, so I don't like uh, cor- corporal punishment, like the death penalty and things like that. I'm not a fan. I'm not out there just rooting. Let's, let's kill people because they kill people. Because we're often so often abusing those things. But I understand them and the value of life that's associated with them. I get it. 1 Corinthians 11.7, Paul writing, For a man man ought not cover his head, since he is the image and the glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. And he's drawing again from that idea that the woman was created from the man and and man uh, is formed by God. But that image remains and the practice of the church and the understanding of the church and the and, and the function of the church mat- it, it mattered to that because of the image of God James 3 9 speaking of how we use our words and our tongues actually is what he's referencing with it we bless our Lord and Father and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God the image remains even, even considering the fall, considering the great weight and curse of God against the sin of mankind, the image remains. And so that draws us to this conclusion. Because we bear God's image even now, it is right to live like it and desire others to as well. Because we bear God's image even now, it is right to live like it and desire others to as well. Now, personally speaking, it's right to want to live uh, for lack of a better way to say it, your best life now. And I'm not talking about the Joel Olstein way of living your best life now. I'm talking about living as an image bearer of God and recognizing his authority, his relationship to you and your relationship to him, his continuity to you, the ways in which you have likeness with him and the ways in which you are completely distinct and other from him. And he is distinct and other from you. To, to understand how life is lived in light of the, the fact that we are his image in this world. And, and that gives us some likeness to the creation, but a, discon- a continuity and discontinuity to the creation as well. And even as we treat other people, it's right personally. But it's right also to long for others to do the same thing because this is the way we have our best life now. It starts with living as an image bearer. It's right to obey him and his commands, to live by his design and desire others to do the same. 
In fact, if we're callous enough to look out at a world and not care how they live, that says more about us than it does about them. They are image bearers. Inside the church, outside the church, different continent, no matter what ethnicity, every one of us share this identity. It is right to obey him and his commands, to submit to his authority, to recognize his ownership, if you will. And it's right to desire it for others as well because that's going to be better for them. I think sometimes we desire it for others because it makes our lives more comfortable. But there's a way in which we can long for it in a right way. It's right to treat one another with respect and dignity, to honor everyone. In fact, Peter, writing to the church early on, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13-ish through 17, I think, he's, he's going to deal with, he, he deals first with a submission to all human institutions, honor the emperor, and he's writing in a time when the emperor wasn't, he, he, he wasn't the representation that they wanted, right? Like he wasn't, uh, he, he wasn't Republican, <laughs> He was about to, about to send them to jail and kill them because they believed in Jesus, right? Like, honor him. In fact, he goes on to say, honor everyone. You know, Jesus is the one who said, love your enemies, or love your neighbors and love your enemies. He said both of those things, right? Like, it's not, this, it's not just a, a, a reality that this is, oh, this, I'm going to love the people that's easy to love. I'm going to honor the people that's easy to love. We're image bearers. There's inherent dignity in every person. I'm guilty of this. I'm guilty of looking at somebody and disliking them and dishonoring them simply because I don't agree with them. I think we see this happening in political circles all the time. We, we, we praise the, the, the representatives we like and we demonize the ones we don't. We don't treat them as image bearers anymore. I don't know why this has come to mind, but I, I feel like I, I need to say it because I think it's something that's right. You know, when we're, when we're walking around joining the culture that we live in with phrases like, let's go, Brandon, who, who does that honor? I don't care if you like him or I, I, I don't like his policies. I don't like, I, I don't think he really knows the God who created us. I don't think he's concerned as much about image, God's image on humanity as I would like him to be. There's no room for that in the Christian world. He bears the image of your God. And mine too. In some way, we are equal. We are exactly the same. Honor everyone. It's right to treat one another with respect and dignity and, and desire everyone else to do the same thing. And when they don't, it's not an excuse for us not to. It's right to remind one another what God expects of his image bearers, to speak truth even when unpopular. Now, in, in this room, what I just said might be unpopular. I'm probably not going to get a lot of emails because you know I'm right. <laughs> I said that for you. But... It's not an unpopular thought. In Christian circles, it's, it's okay to say the things that we say about the presidents we don't like, right? But we live in a culture where it's not, just, not, not, not only is that an unpopular thing, an unpopular position to hold, an unpopular opinion to hold. It's unpopular to speak of what's sinful and what's not sinful, what God condones and what God doesn't condone. In fact, sometimes speaking truth is called hate. Oftentimes speaking truth is called hate. It's right to desire 
God's image bearers, to live as if they're image bearers because we want them to know the goodness of living with him instead of against him. It's actually hate to condone what he condemns and to let people live in it because we just soon not be bothered by it or, or be rejected for it or be condemned ourselves because of it. That's a love of self and not other. That's a dignity of self and not other. That's an honoring of self and not the other image bearers. It's right to remind one another. It's right to say these things. It's right to go into the world and make the Bible, the truth of God's word, known. Well, they don't like it. No, they, many won't. But that's denying the fact that some will. And they'll submit their lives to it. And they'll give themselves to it. And they'll recognize suddenly, first, first time ever maybe, that they are an image bearer of God. It's right to honor life and protect it. To, to call abortion what it is, right? But to, not, not, to, to seek the best way possible to not dishonor those, to demonize those or condemn those without any hope of life on the other side for those who have had an abortion or give abortions. But we should, and it's right to call them to repentance. It's right to desire justice for ourselves and others when we see injustice happening. It's right because we're all image bearers. We should be bothered by the fact that, that drunk drivers kill innocent people. We should be bothered by the fact that, that, that statistically men harm children more at, at, a, at, a, at a crazy rate. Women do it too. We should be bothered by anybody doing it. It should absolutely deep, cut us at the deepest sense of who we are because we are bearers of God's image. There's inherent value and dignity attached to the sign just by the very fact that he's the creator. It should bother us deeply when we see injustices occur. And it's right for us to stand up and say something, to speak out against it. It's right to demand that our governing authorities and governing uh, representatives make laws that recognize image bearers as valuable and dignified. It's right to, to long for that. It's right to expect it. It's right to vote in line with it. It's right to, to, to form our opinions of what culture should look like and could look like if everyone would live as an image bearer of the God who created them. It's right to long for that. But this is earth, not heaven. And let me guard you against going out into the world and demanding everybody recognize their image bearer status by you seeking to rule and subdue them in the way that you've been called to rule and subdue the earth, because that's not going to work. It's right for us to want this. It's right for us to desire this, but it's right for us to ensure that we seek to promote it and pursue it in a way that God has given us in the gospel of his grace through Jesus Christ. In Christ, the image that has been marred by sin is being restored by grace. Here's what you can't do. You cannot make a Democrat become Republican over the argument of image of God without, and, 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 and someone begin to conform themselves to the image of God without the grace of God at work in their life. 
I can demonstrate this to you biblically over and over and over, but in part, what God's doing in the gospel of grace is conforming us to his likeness again, to, to take what has been marred and what is, is, is almost invisible and what is often rejected by the world. And he's conforming us back to it, Romans 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Do you know who Jesus is? The image of God. He is the sinless Right example, the, 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 the representation and the reflection of God that we would look like had we not sinned. And so when he says he's coming, conforming us to his image, he's conforming us to be the people we were created to be. 1 Corinthians 15, 49, just as we have been born in the image of the man of dust, we also bear the image of the man of heaven. Talking to Christian people, using this as a reason for the Corinthians to live up to what they've been called to. We're, the church is so busy trying to get the world to act like they're image bearers that they've forgotten that we're actually the ones who can recognize it and have the transformative power of God's grace to actually live like it. That we often ignore the stuff inside the building because it's easier to complain about all the junk outside. But Paul's calling the, the church in Corinth the repentance. We also bear the image of the man of heaven. 2 Corinthians 3.18, we will all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord being transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is spirit. Colossians 3.9-10, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on, sorry, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Brothers and sisters, I, I, I'm all for us going out into the world and proclaiming the truth. I'm all for us going out in the world and calling the world to live as image bearers of God, but we cannot do that apart from the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it's in that that he begins to conform a person to the image of his son and bring what's been marred out so that it begins to shine, that it begins to be the representation and reflection. We're so quick to just try and go and do it by carnal means. We're going to rule, and we're going to subdue, and we're going to force, and we're going to make people do this. We're going to argue with them about it in worldly arguments and methodology. We have something that's far more powerful. The grace of God in Jesus Christ, who is the image of our God. And to whose image we are being conformed. In Christ, the image that has been marred by sin is being restored by grace. So go preach the truth in love. Go preach the truth of sin and grace. Go preach and proclaim the truth that every person is an image bearer of God. And when a person recognizes their fallenness and the brokenness and the ways that they've turned, you offer them, you promise them, you show them. The grace of God that conforms us to the likeness of his son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray.